This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Lisa C., whose latest novel is Lady Tan Circle of Women, earlier novels, Snowflower and the Secret Fan, China Dolls, The Island of Sea Women. This is the 12th book. The first was nonfiction. The rest have all been fiction. Lisa C., in the afterword to Lady Tan's Circle of Women, you talked about the origins of the book. You were working on a book that didn't quite work, that you'd been kind of doing research on for quite a while, and suddenly this book popped out at you, and it had been there, what, 10 years? So you look at the book, and it was out of alignment or something, and you pulled it down and said, wow? It was sort of like that. I don't know if it was fate, fortune, destiny, serendipity, but it did jump out. And it may have just been out of alignment. I I don't really remember now, except that I did pull it down. And it was called Reproducing Women, Pregnancy and Childbirth in the Ming Dynasty. And as you said, I'd had the book on my shelf for 10 years. I'd never opened it, let alone read it. And I just sat down right then and started to read it. And when I got to page 19, there was a mention of a woman doctor, Tan Yanshan, who in the Ming dynasty, so 500 years ago, was a doctor. So that right off the bat was pretty interesting to me. I mean, China does have a history of female doctors going back about 2,000 years, but very few and far between. You know, still pretty extraordinary to me. But what was amazing was that in 1511, she published a book of her medical cases when she turned 50. And I just... I don't know. I just thought that was the most amazing thing. And I set that book down. I went over to the computer and just started to look around a little bit for her. And I found out that that book, Miscellaneous Records of a Female Doctor, was not only in print, still in print in China and in Chinese, but also available in English. And so I ordered it. I had it the next day. And so although, and you know this, I do think about books for a very long time before I decide this is the one, that instead of thinking about this for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, it was all of about 26 hours. How long between the time when you realized, oh my God, this book that I've been working on on and off for eight years that I thought was my next book after The Island of Sea Women, how long between the time when you put that aside, which was, I guess, before the pandemic? Well, so March 2020 was the shutdown. I think none of us really knew how long it was going to last. Remember, they were saying two weeks. Right. And then we'll all get back to normal. Well, it turned out not to be two weeks. And I think it became clear pretty quickly that it wasn't going to be that two weeks. And that project was going to require a trip deep, deep, deep into a very remote part of China. Not possible to do in 2020 at all. But even now, I'd be very reluctant to go that anywhere in the world that remote. So I just saw that that's not going to work. So it was really from, we could even call it April of 2020, that there was that sort of limbo time when we didn't really know what was going to happen. And then, oh, we realized this, it's going to be like this for quite a while. So I would say then from April to October, and it was in October of that year that I kind of stumbled across this book that was just here on my own shelf. What time frame was that other novel, and is it permanently aside? It's not permanently aside, but that one still would require a, a pretty serious trip to China uh, It's based on a real couple, and he's kind of regarded as the the godfather of uh, Chinese architecture, but he and his wife in the early 1920s, if I'm remembering correctly, went out across China in search of the oldest wooden buildings, And and they found them, and these buildings are still in very remote places, some of them, but they date back to the 800s. 
So the fact that there are these buildings that date back that far. And these, these two people had a remarkable life. She was a poet. They were both educated here in the United States. They were young revolutionaries. Of course, young revolutionaries later in time were seen as bourgeois or whatever. So they were, you know, he in particular was punished in his later life during the Cultural Revolution and, and died in almost utter obscurity. Lisa C., so you had the idea, you had it all working, but you couldn't do the kind of research you needed to do, which brings us back to Lady Tan. That first name has an X in it. What is it again? Yan Xian. So you take down the book, and what struck me immediately when I began to read it was that I have a friend who became an acupuncturist here in San Francisco. And the amount of work he did, and I'm thinking, boy, at that point, once you get into the world of traditional Chinese medicine, you have to know a lot, which means at that point, even as you're first looking through it and thinking, hey, this would work, you knew what was in front of you. I did. (laughs) And the fact that I wouldn't have the same type of access to material that I ordinarily would have had. And I'll just say one thing about having something as complicated with as much history, with as much sort of cultural implications as traditional Chinese medicine has. As a writer, there's also a part where you have to simplify it enough so that the person who picks up the book in a bookstore and goes home to read it, they're not drowning in that inf- information. That it has to feel natural, but that you don't have to have every single thing in there. And how that gets woven in, that's the art of writing this kind of novel, where I, I don't like to speak ill of the dead. But when I was in high school, I loved to read um, those uh, Michener novels. And remember, they were so big, you know, Hawaii, and it's this gigantic thing. And you're reading along, and there's a plot, and there's a love story, and there's, you know, and you're turning the pages because you want to know. And then every once in a while, you'd have to stop for 50 pages to read about volcanoes. So to me, and this is something my editors have been very good at really keeping me on this, is how you pull out that information and take it out of there. And I think of it a little bit like that game Jenga, you know, so you have all that you've built this tower and now you start pulling pieces out. You want that tower to still be strong, but you don't have to have every single piece in there for it still to look like a tower. So there's a kind of rule of thumb that my editor and I have, which is, yes, she'll allow me three pages of, of history or, you know, some background thing that I'm fascinated with. But then any like one word beyond that, she's like, come on, you've got to cut it. And sometimes she's just like, look, you have a ha- a whole paragraph here and it's just stopping the action. So how those things get woven in so that people, particularly with something like traditional Chinese medicine, that it has to still feel real. It has to be accurate but you don't have to put every single thing in because people aren't studying to become doctors. They're, they're just, they're reading because they're, you know, they want to be entertained and they want to learn something maybe. At the same time, you kind of know those blocks have to be in the tower in your mind because then you have to know what you can pull. Right. So my first draft is very long because I have to put in everything that I found. I found it. I want to use it. And then that's the whole editing for me is is pulling stuff out. Like how much of this do I actually need to have for it to make sense and still feel full and rich? It's not the dietetic version, but that it doesn't have to have every single detail. We're going to go into a lot of those details in a minute. Can I, can I just give it, can, actually, can I give an example? Because this just popped in my head. So I, you know, she, uh, Tanya Shen, she has se- several remedies. And in her book, she describes, here's the patient, here's what's wrong, here's 
the, what I'm suggesting for her remedy and here's how to make it. And so let's say a remedy has 10 ingredients. I don't have to put all 10 in. I think it's more important to maybe use three, but talk about, write about why those three are important and what they do. So see, it's not, it's not the whole recipe, but it's taking some of the things from the recipe and expanding on those so that then they make sense. Like, oh, if you take this root, here's what it does for you and, and why. And here's the history, maybe even the history of it or how it was discovered. And to me, that's much more interesting than having a list of 10 ingredients. Lady Tan is using pills. She's using herbs and teas. There's one point where she's putting things on eight different places on a body. And I'm thinking, what is that about? She did not use acupuncture. So that's called moxibustion. And the way to kind of visualize it is sometimes you see incense in the shape of a cone. Okay. So that's, these are often in the shape of a cone and they're put on the acupuncture spots um, and then lit like, like incense. And as they burn down, the ingredients of this cone are sort of seeping into these channels, these acupuncture channels. Was there acupuncture then? There was acupuncture. She didn't do it. Which you found out because she doesn't mention it at all, I guess. She doesn't mention it. And her grandmother, who was also a doctor, didn't use it. Her grandfather, who was what's known as a literati doctor, a doctor who learns how to be a doctor by reading books, he didn't use it. So she was really learning from them. And they for whatever reason, preferred to stay with herbs and moxibustion. In the book, we learn a lot about what it is like to be a very wealthy young woman, because she's mostly young in the book, in that time period. And also because you have a um, her midwife best friend, we learn what it's like not to be a wealthy woman in that time period. You do make the mention that they both envied one another for what they could and couldn't do. You, Lisa C., which would you rather have been? Hmm. Well, personally, I would rather be able to be out in the outside world, even though that meant probably in some ways my life would have been harder. But uh, living in utter seclusion is not, I don't, I think that's difficult. And I, I think that that was very highlighted during the pandemic that many of us discovered, gee, being alone 24 hours a day, day after day after day is not so great. And also not even being able to go out and do the things that we like to do, if it, even if it's going to a concert or a play or a museum, but even something as basic as going to the grocery store, all of a sudden had a very different feel to it because, well, I suppose you could say you were risking your life every time you went to the grocery store, but also it was just, it's that contact that we have with the outside world, what we see, what we hear, uh, how we interact with people, um, all of those sights and sounds that are the things that fill, fill us. And I think also, you know, fill us emotionally, and psychologically, but also are the things that help to feed our creativity and our empathy. And so, you know, that that's just me of how I sort of feel about being in the world for these elite women. And, and Tanya and Shun, her, she came from um, generations of imperial scholars. Her father was very high up in um, one of the government boards, the uh, Board of Punishments, her father, so her father, her grandfather, her uncle, all really high up. And this was without question an elite family. She was highly educated. She went to live with her grandparents when she was eight years old. And her grand and she used to recite poetry to her grandfather at night when he, he would drink wine and she would recite poetry. And I don't have this memorized, but 
but she writes about it in, in her foreword to her book, that he said something like, this girl is very smart. We shouldn't let her confine her to embroidery and reciting poetry. We should teach her, and he said, my medicine. So his idea of his medicine, this out of books, but it was really that she learned under her grandmother. But being so, you know, highly, highly educated, very privileged, has her own servant from birth. But I think a price of that is that confinement and the restrictions that were placed on these elite women. So, of course, she goes into an arranged marriage when she's 15. Um, I've written about arranged marriages in my other books, but I, I do think about it a lot. And actually all the research today, because there's still plenty of arranged marriages in the world, that arranged marriages actually tend to last longer than love marriages. So there is, that's an interesting thing to think about. But the other side of it is, I, I think about being a 15-year-old girl and you're dressed up in your outfit and you're taken, you know, in this palanquin, you can't see out, you're taken to your husband's home, you're taken back, you know, can't see anything because you have this veil over you. And then basically you're taken to the back bedroom to have sex with your husband who you've never even seen before. You know, uh, you would understand, oh, this is the culture and this is what everybody does in our class and this is what's expected of me. But there must have been a part of that that was really terrifying and very scary. So that's one thing. The another is that, you know, people of that class live together in these large compound homes where you'd, you know, surrounded by a wall and inside there'd be different courtyards. Maybe one family would live on this one. You're living with between 40 and 100 of your husband's relatives. And you're not seeing your relatives. You're not seeing your friends. You're now for the rest of your life kind of confined within these four walls with these people. And in particular, in the women's quarters where women would spend their entire day. Uh, and even in, within that, there was this kind of class system where you had servants, you had the concubines, you had the wives, sometimes there were secondary wives, there's the one woman who's in charge. And so there was, and if you've ever watched um, like a Chinese soap opera that takes place in imperial times, there's always this fighting for incremental territory, an incremental power within that woman's chamber. And to me, again, just thinking how that would be for me to live with all of my husband's female relatives and spend every single day with them from morning till night until I died. Not that I don't love them, but it is like my version of hell. <laughs> <laughs> And that you wouldn't be able to go out. And, and in this time period, you know, Confucian thought really went through society, culture, family, and really set what people could do, what those boundaries were. And he was a great thinker, don't get me wrong. He was a great philosopher, but he didn't care for women. I think that's really fair to say. So one of his sayings is, a good woman will never go more than three steps beyond her front gate. So that meant that really, if you're following Confucian thought, that you're really keeping women completely confined for the entire part of their lifetime. I suppose the upside is they're not as exposed to epidemics, they're not as exposed to war, they're not as exposed to certain kinds of violence that you would see on the street. I mean, they're very, very protected. I'm just trying to say there's a downside to that total, total protection and isolation. And I keep thinking as you're talking that you have a choice as a writer to have something third person, which is kind of God looking down close third person, which focuses on one character but could expand outward, 
or first person entirely. And it struck me as you were talking that there were two reasons to make it first person for you. One is that you're writing this in the pandemic and it's very easy for you, given your isolation, to write about someone's isolation through their eyes. And the second is it makes it a little bit easier on your research on what's going on outside. I don't know about the second part. What I, the way I think about it is that if you can live in their shoes, you know, if I'm in her shoes, there's that whole thing of the unreliable narrator. So I think she's actually pretty reliable. I've had other people in other novels who aren't very reliable, but she only knows what she knows. She only knows what she can see. So that limits her in certain ways. But on the other hand, she does have a certain amount of knowledge that no one else has. But she is limited in her sense of the world beyond. And so that when she, and I don't think this gives anything away to say that she does start to venture out, it's all completely new to her. And um, if she drives by the, you know, goes by the butcher shop, she's seeing that for the first time. If she's on a river, you know, being transported from one place to another place, she's seeing the big open sky for the first time. I, I think there's a limitation there, but also it's a way um, to bring fresh eyes to something that could seem ordinary. You know, if I said to you, oh, hey, Richard, what's the sky out like today? You'd be like, yeah, whatever. You know, it's sunny, it's cloudy, it's foggy where you are. I don't know. But for her, who had only seen just a little sliver of sky for most of her life, to actually see that big sky for the first time, it has a very different impact. And to try to capture that was interesting for me. Lisa C., Lady Tan's life, what we know of it, Obviously, we just have a couple of pieces of information after the age of 50. But even at that point, there are many, many gaps. So in a sense, even though you've got these various patients and you can add them in or specifics there, you're basically creating her life for her. In the afterward, you talk about how there was no way of knowing if she actually did go to Beijing. There's no record of her ever leaving the town of Wuxi after she moved there, that she ever left. And you made the decision that you would take her to Beijing. What prompted that decision, or was it always there in your original conception? It wasn't there in the original conception, but there were two things that did prompt it. The first was, in addition to her own book and her own cases, I was really looking at um, the historic records, particularly about women's health and women's reproductive health in that time period. And it's amazing what has been saved and what's available. So for example, that book that I first pulled down, uh, Reproducing Women in the Ming Dynasty, this is, you know, that's a huge academic book on that subject with many, many, many cases. And that was just one source for me. But every once in a while, I would read of a case and think, I've got to use that. You know, and, and that leads me to the second part of why I wanted her to go to the Forbidden City. And I've already touched on it a little bit, but it's that idea of women on a continuum where in the past you could say servants concubines, wives, spinster aunts, um, all the way up to the empress. And we would have working women, the woman who holds the tiller on the ship, the tile maker, the brick and tile maker, a midwife. These are women who are out in the world, very different from the ones who are confined. But they're all on the same continuum. And we can relate that to today. You could say, Oh, it's a maid who works in a hotel or, um, you know, a, a young, beautiful young girl who's out dating every, somebody new every night or a mom with three kids in a van and, all, and you go all the way up to a, what would be the equivalent of the empress. We'll just say Beyonce, 
right? And that we, so we have these parallels, even though they may look different on the outside. So I was thinking about that, how women are on these, this sort of stratified layer of what their lives are like, somebody who lives in the inside, somebody who's out in the outside. Um, but what unites all of these women, whether it's today or in her time, 500 years ago, or we could say when we're all living on Mars 500 years from now, or maybe sooner, is that we're united through time, through geography, through space, by this unique physiology and biology that we have. And so, you know, when I'm writing a novel, it's not just the plot. I obviously have some themes that I'm exploring. And so those were the, those were two of them that felt to me very connected. And that with the, this vast amount of knowledge that's out there about what women's lives were like and, and how women were taken care of, physically taken care of in those days, that there were stories that I found that I felt, oh, this actually helps me think about this idea of women on a continuum. It helps me think about it doesn't matter time, space, geography. That could have happened today. It could have happened 500 years ago. When you're doing your research and looking for something that's going to grab your attention because it grabs your attention, it obviously has to go in the book. What were th- a couple of the most amazing things that you wouldn't have even thought of unless you found it. The worm. I mean, I could never have imagined that or made it up. Well, there are three for me that are the big standouts. So the one is the worm. The next one is when the message is written on the baby's foot. I'm not trying to give away too much. And then the thing that does happen in front of the empress. All three of those incidents happen to real women. And so they could seem, um, you know, far-fetched or made up, but those are the ones that are completely grounded in historical fact. When I found them, I just felt like, oh my God, I've got to use it, (laughs) you know? And I think all three of them on the surface can seem unbelievable, but the fact that they happen to real people Real women. That's why I, I use them. What about the weirdest thing you found other than the worm? I think the idea of ghost pregnancies. A woman's husband died and five years later she gave birth. Or someone's husband has been traveling for two years and somewhere at you know 18 months she gives birth. So there was this idea of ghost pregnancies that you could be pregnant for way longer than nine months. What struck me about it was that it was a way to actually save a woman's virtue. I mean, obviously, a woman wasn't pregnant for five years after her husband died. But this was a way that within the society, they could say, oh, she gave birth to her husband's son. You know, it was a ghost pregnancy, um, but we don't have to ostracize her or punish her. And this was particularly important in these big elite family homes where you certainly didn't want to have scandal, but that it it all it was a way to protect women in, a, in an interesting way. Because on the surface, it seems like that it's so far-fetched. There's a lot of eunuchs in the Forbidden City but none elsewhere? Is that correct? Well, there were some who were sent out on behalf of the emperor. And in under different emperors, there were periods where the eunuchs had extraordinary power and were really basically running the government. And so if they were running the government, that meant that they were going out across the country. Um, They were the eyes and ears. But originally this started because the emperor could have as many as 10,000 women living with him. You know, if any of those women got pregnant, they better belong to the, be potential emperors themselves, you know, that they had to be in direct line. So that this was a way of sort of protecting his, they didn't call it a harem, but, you know, for now we can call it his harem of women. Also, the relationship of concubines, uh, did that surprise you or had you know about that before? 
that concubines were kind of an official part of these wealthy families, and that if a concubine gave birth, that child, even though it was born out of wedlock, could wind up being the heir. I don't have to look far for this. So in my own family, my it would be my great uncle. He had nine sons, but he had a total of three or four, I can't remember, wives. And it was actually the second one. She wasn't a wife. She was just a maid in the house, was the first one to give birth. And so in my family, um, in this pretty traditional in Chinese families, you know, it was number one, number two, number three, number four. And they still, to this day, refer to themselves to each other that way, um, not by their names, but by their birth order. And so the person who was actually number one was the son of the maid, but then number two, he was the first son of the, the wife. And always in my family, there has been this way that they will say, well, he's number one, but he's really not number one. This one is number one. And, and so all the way to today, they still talk about it that way. And what that meant, you know, in terms of who was the eldest son. And the other side of it is that if by some chance the father can't be a father, then the wife or concubine could actually have her own person, her own man, and that the son there would then be adopted as if he was the official son. Correct. Did you know that beforehand? Yes. But this part really has to do with the afterworld and traditions surrounding the afterworld. I mean, I've, I've wrote about it a little differently in Lady Tan's Circle of Women, actually a little more directly than I have in some of the other novels where, you know, it's always important to have a son. I think in all of my books, actually, the importance of having a son. But the reason why that's so important is that so many of the holidays, particularly Chinese New Year, which, you know, is across Asia, but might have different dates. Part of that is making offerings to your ancestors who are in the afterlife. The thing is, in the afterlife, it's, it's like a parallel world to this one where you have all the same needs, wants and desires as you have here. So you need to have food, you need to have clothes, you need to have a place to live, you need to have the newest phone, you want to have a flat screen TV, all of the things that we want here, you, they need there. And so in China, but you can see it here too, um, in the lead up to Chinese New Year, you'll see people maybe ma making offerings of fresh fruit, but sometimes they make things out of paper mache or, or you can buy stuff. I've seen in China, you know, people on a motorcycle driving with a huge flat screen TV that's made out of tissue paper, basically. And then these are, you set fire to them and then they travel to the afterlife to your family to use. And out of their gratitude for your offerings, they're going to reward the family throughout the year with happiness, a good job, money, um, good health. And so it's this very connected relationship between this everyday life and the afterlife. And it's a very quid pro quo. But here's the catch. Only one person can make those offerings, and it's the eldest son. So there has to be one. Yeah, there, and that's why you have to have one. So China does have this very old, very deep tradition of, I'm going to put it in air quotes, you know, adopting someone else's son to be your elder son. So, for example, if, if I had five girls and my sister had five sons, I might adopt one of her sons. It's not a true adoption. I'm not raising that child. She would still raise that child, but I would maybe pay for his education and whatever. And in return, after I die, he would take care of my grave. He'd make offerings. That brings up another question. When you're doing the research and putting in your book, Lady Tan Circle of Women, when you're putting that in the book, each of these segments about treating various patients 
contains information which modern traditional Chinese medicine might use. And there are reasons to believe that that works Mm -hmm. and that it's a different science of medicine. But there's also this other stuff about these superstitions, the religious superstitions, and trying to blend the two into something that makes sense. I kept shaking my head and going, yes, yes. Oh, she's doing it for some reason that has to do with snakes, as opposed to reasons that have to do with balancing your your chi. Mm-hmm. And at your end, when you're writing this, how are you feeling and how are you dealing with putting in the legend and then the stuff that we know works? A lot of things come out of legends and stories that are passed down for why something works. I mean, traditional Chinese medicine has been around for 2000 years. So it has a very deep history to it. And so many of the ingredients, we'll call them, you know, of, of these different, whether it's from stone or dried animal of some sort, or herbs, that somebody had to discover that originally. And often there is a story behind how that was discovered and, you know, and and some of that can seem kind of magical. But on the other hand, and and you sort of bring it up with this religious idea, it's like in communion in the Catholic church, are you actually taking the body and blood of Christ? Well, that it's a metaphor, right? It's not, you're not, when you go up for your communion, you're not actually having the, it's, it's like the idea of it. And so I, I don't think that this is unique to the Chinese. I think you'd find that in almost any culture. Lisa C., were they all so formal with each other? Or is the formality something that we arrive at now in terms of how we, quote, translate what they're saying? This is a very good question. Let me think about that for a second. I I think that in those big elite homes, there was a certain formality that comes from a couple of things. First, everybody has their position, right? And one thing, like in Chinese language, you have a different word for your maternal grandmother is a different word from your paternal grandmother. Your paternal aunts and uncles have different names and your maternal aunts and uncles. It's pretty much, actually, a lot of that is built into the language so that when you're addressing someone, if you say second aunt, you know exactly where they are in the universe of your family. And it is a sign of respect, too, that you're you're addressing people in that way. But I would also say that in a practical way, again, in these big elite homes, that it was a way of, of um, kind of controlling people, right? You always know what your position is because people are saying it all the time. You know, you're, you're being reminded of your position all the time. And I don't know if you noticed this, but, you know, the concubines in this novel, they, they are like Miss Chen, Miss whatever. The, yeah, I did The notice, servants, yeah. they all have names like Sparrow and Inky and, you know, that they're, those are just regular names, but they're just because they're regular people that don't have any rank. And so, I, I again, I just think it's partly, it's part of the culture of how, um, the whole language was developed. You always know where you are in your family, but that also in those big, big elite homes, this was a way of keeping people in their place. Smallpox vaccinations existed in China in the fourteen in the fifteen hundreds. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was called variolation. So it's an early form of inoculation. We've been talking about it. We were living through that first couple of years of the pandemic and having lots of discussions, of course, about vaccines and it was this a good thing? Was it a bad thing? What could it do to you? And what amazed me 
is that with variolation, I guess I should say a little bit what it was, they would take the scabs from someone who had probably died from smallpox and grind them up and then blow them through a, a tube, like a long straw into someone's nose. Or they'd take the gooey, gunky stuff that came right off of, of those superating smallpox um, wounds and, and rub it on under your nose or wrap it and put it in your nose and, and then seal your nose for a couple of days. And so obviously there were some problems with this. Um, some people could get very sick. Some people could die. Some people would be very scarred. But if you lived through that process, you were basically inoculated against smallpox for the rest of your life. And so because there were risks, um, and a lot of it had to do with beauty for women, and especially at a time when women were being bought and sold, uh, where you're, you know, if you're an elite family, yes, you're going to go hopefully into an arranged marriage. But if you are covered with smallpox scars, you're not going to go into a great one, even if you're wealthy. So it, it, these were real issues to them. And so what I was going to say is that what really struck me was that the pros and cons and the exact exact same arguments that we had been hearing for the last three years in the exact same language was going on right then. You go into details about foot binding. I, it's appeared in other books, so I don't really need to go into that. But you do kind of focus a little bit about how these wealthy women with their foot binding, that their entire life is in pain. When you're writing that, looking out through their eyes, what's going through your mind? It's not just that they were in physical pain. And, you know, just to put this in context, a woman's toes were broken. The bones in her midfoot were broken. The, the way to kind of visualize it is that it's almost like rolling up a sock, right? And so all that a woman was left to walk on basically was her big toe. So if we think about just for a moment what that would feel like, and those bones that were, are all wrapped up like a, the sock part, they're not healing. They're still all broken in there. You know, and maybe in some cases they would fuse together, but really they're just all held together with these long strips of binding cloth. And so you're walking on that every day. I don't see how you couldn't be in really major pain all the time. What, what the consequences were if you didn't take care of them and the reasons why a woman might decide she didn't want to anymore. Behind all of this story and all of this detail, you do something else, which I don't want to go into too much detail about, but we'll put it in modern literary language. At various points, you put a gun in a handbag and you do it several times, and eventually, obviously, the gun comes out. This is all metaphor for what actually happens in the book. At what point did you realize that you were going to create this behind-the-scenes plot? It was pretty early. I didn't see this as directly as a mystery. My first three novels were mysteries. I don't see this as a mystery. However, there is something that does happen. Like you said, it's in a behind the scenes plot. And much of that was inspired by another book that I found called The Washing Away of Wrongs that was originally published. I think it's in 1247. And it's the earliest book uh, in the world on forensics. I thought it was interesting, and again, this sort of is thematic, right, that Yenshin's, all the men in her family work for the, the Board of Punishments, and that this board, these men are tasked with investigating crime. They're the investigator, the arresting policeman, the, they hold the trial, they're the judge, and they make the sentence. And because the sentences, the punishments, I mean, it's called the Board of Punishments, right? Because the punishments were so severe for even pretty mild crimes, 
I thought about the darkness of that juxtaposed to this medicine and healing people and bringing, you know, bringing life into the world. And that, that these were such opposites, but you had it within the same family. And I think that certainly for Yan Chun's grandmother, this was something that drove her very much in her practice of medicine, was that it was the yin, it was, you know, the yin and the yang within this one family of this really dark way of punishing people and holding them responsible. But at the same time, on the other side, you have uh, trying to heal people, bring people into the world. One thing I will say about the washing of way of wrongs is um, I just recently did an event in Colorado and there was a woman there who had studied forensics here in this country and one of her textbooks was The Washing Away of Wrongs. I mean, yes, there's a lot in there that is still used today for how you determine, you know, did someone drown by accident? Did someone hold their head down? Um, did someone hang themselves on purpose? Was it an accident? Was Is it staged? All of that stuff is in, all in there, and it could still be used today, right, if you're really looking for that, because... You know, I guess a dead body doesn't change that much over the centuries. You know, the same the same things are going to show up. And what she said, though, was that the reason that they used that text was that there's so much in there about how you see a body to this transition to from life to death, and what happens to the body, and why it's important important to care for the body. And that this, and this was why they were using that in her class. So again, I go back to this idea of you know bringing people into the world, but also seeing people out of the world. What are the six grannies? What are they all? Well, um, the gosh, can I remember them all? Midwives are in there. Religious women, matchmakers, procurers. Uh, I don't know if I have all six, but these six categories of women, all working women at some degree, um, were seen as really like the low, you know, really low in society. And that you, if you were an elite family, you didn't want any of these people coming into your home, even though they have a necessity. You know, you may not approve of midwives, but you need to have them. You may not approve of matchmakers, but you often ha you have to have them. So, again, to me, that again goes back to this sort of light and dark, yin and yang, where you're trying to find a balance. Society saying no; these people are the dregs of society, and yet you need them, even if you're, you know, at a, an elite family. I guess this is just my own curiosity. There's a boat that she travels to and from Beijing on. I could not get a sense. She had all of this stuff with her. How big were those boats? Well, I'm talking about when she goes from her home to the Forbidden City, she has a lot on the way back. Oh, yes. I mean, these were pretty big. If you think of the 16th century version of a barge, you know, that they would have had plenty of stuff on the deck. She's always going onto the deck, right, to, to sort of poke around in, in these things. It's not like she's hanging out underneath um, going through the, the big cargo bins under the water, but it's, it's more of what's up on the deck. Lisa C., I want to ask you a few other questions. I was going through IMDb, and I saw a few things that didn't make much sense. Something about someone named Monica Highland and a book called Lotus Land. Uh-huh. So my mother, Carolyn C. and John Espy, my mother's longtime live-in friend, uh, and I wrote three books under the name of Monica Highland. And these were for name, we named ourselves for the intersection of Santa Monica and Highland. You wrote these books with two other people, and then you began working on your own. Was it? Did it feel like an apprenticeship for you? Absolutely. You know, my mother was a writer. John was a writer. 
21 years between my mother and me, 21 years between my mother and John. They had a lot more experience than I did. But this was a very democratic process. And it was, this is going to show how old I am, before they had computers. And um, so I was the one who hand wrote everything. And so we would take turns talking. But, you know, the person who holds the pen has the final authority of what goes on the page. And so sometimes they'd be taught, they'd be like telling a whole scene and I would just be waiting. Like, I don't like that so much, but I did learn so much from them. So my mother was a writer, John was a writer, but my mother's father was also a writer. And so I'm third generation. Um, so much of my work habits comes from them. I feel like I did have kind of a lifelong apprenticeship Sometimes I joke around, like, I'm glad they weren't plumbers, but gosh, why couldn't they have been brain surgeons? You know, but I, but I, I'm so grateful that I got to, to see um, real working writers from the time I was a small child. Lisa C., IMDb, of course, lists Snowflower and The Secret Fan because that's a film that came out. Were you happy with that one? No. <laughs> Not really. Um, no, I, I mean, there's some scenes in that film that I, I really like and that I would not have been able to create in a novel. I mean, I did have it in the novel, but to see it visually was, was much better. Uh, the one that I always go back to is there's a month of singing and crying in the upstairs chamber before someone marries out. And so I wrote that scene and, you know, they're singing songs. And it, but, but the production company found the Yao ethnic minority people who knew those wedding songs. And so the scene shows them, you know, singing those wedding songs. And it's so, you know, to have the music, to have the voices, that's one of the wonderful things about film, that you, you know, you take something that is only words on a page, but they can bring all the sound to it. But the rest of it, meh. Well, I mean, there were people who who really loved that book. And, you know, if I tell you there's a scene with Hugh Jackman singing and dancing in it, you know that they made some changes. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking, I know I saw it, and I remember that, and I'm thinking, seriously? But... It's Hollywood. But, you know, here's the thing. I have a very good friend, very old family friend, who was the longtime main book critic, sorry, film critic for the L.A. Times, Kenny Turan. And the writing was on the wall pretty early about the film. Like, I was, I was worried about it, and I knew that people really loved the book. There was one time we were going out to dinner, and I said to him, I'm just really scared about what people are going to say. You can't reach the director, you can't reach the stars, but I'm pretty accessible. And so I just, like, I don't know what I should say when people say, like, well, you know, what did you, how did you let them do that? How did they, you let them do that to your book? And um, he, he told me a story about James M. Cain. So, you know, Mildred Pierce, The Postman Always Rings Twice. I mean, these are, first of all, some of the greatest novels. But also, these are classic, classic films that at the time, people would say to him, how could you let them do that to The Postman Always Rings Twice, for example? And he would answer, they did nothing to the book. It's still right there on the shelf. And that helped me so much. And I've obviously carried it to today. Film is completely different. A writer a novel, you know, somebody who writes novels, that's my vision. It's my aesthetic. We've been talking a lot about underlying themes. Those are my underlying themes, but a film belongs to the director and the director, he or she, you know, they have their own aesthetic. They have their own themes that they want to have. They, they interact with the actors in different ways. There's parts of the story that mean more to them than might've meant to me. So I think it's a mistake to say that it's a bad film. I think it's better. It's just Wayne Wong's vision of that story. 
and he's an artist too. And, and as a director, that's his vision. Um, it's, you know, sometimes in the moment as you're seeing it, it's like, oh my God, but, but, you know, if I can step back, I, I really believe that, that it is the director's vision and that these are completely different ways of telling story. They're completely different media. Talking to other writers, I see it more as you're lucky if it comes out in a way that satisfies you and you're unlucky if it comes out in a way that doesn't. But the truth is, you give it away, you sell it, it's their business, and you got to let it go, period. Speaking of that, there are two other uh, Lisa C. works in adaptation that I didn't know about. Uh, There's apparently either coming or maybe it won't come, a Korean TV series of the Island of Sea Women, and the other is... Peony and Love in Development. Peony and Love was in development for about 10 years with Ridley Scott. And then finally, after 10 years, and he was, they were very lovely because they kept paying me money every 18 months, but finally he let it go. And then uh, Island of Sea Women is in development with a company in South Korea to be a television series. You know, someone asked me the other day, are they affected by the writer's strike? I actually don't know. Like, if you live in Korea, do, are you a member of the Writers Guild here? I I don't know. So I don't, I'm not sure if they have still been proceeding. Um, I know they have a writer that they're working with who's developing the, you know, how this would play out over five years. I just, I haven't spoken to them in a little while because I've been out on tour for Lady Tan. And one final question. Okay, Lady Tan was finished. It went through all of its edits. It came out. And that means that it was finished around a year ago, give or take. Have you started on another one? I have done a lot of the research. I haven't started writing. I'm going to really be wrapping up all the touring for Lady Tan in about two weeks. And then we're going to go to Colorado and hole up there for maybe a month. And so I hope once I get there that I can really um, take all of the research that I have and start to put it together into a, a at least a long outline of what I want to have happen. And can you give us a taste of when and where it takes place? This isn't the only historic backdrop, but I'll just say one of the major pieces is the 1871 Los Angeles Chinatown Massacre. And so Los Angeles at that time, only 5,000 people, uh, tiny compared to San Francisco at that time. And it was considered to be the wildest of the Wild West towns, far more violent, far more gunslingers and shoot-em-ups than places like Deadwood, Dodge City, Laramie, you know, all those places that we think of as being the Wild West towns. Um, But Los Angeles was the most violent. And 10% of the population participated in the massacre. 10% of the Chinese were killed. They were shot, stabbed, hung. This is considered to be one of the largest mass lynchings in the history of our country. I'm telling the story from the perspective of, again, based on real women, three real women um, who lived there and saw everything. Um, at that time, only 34 Chinese women in Los Angeles. I think about that a lot, like what their lives must have been like um, to be in this very rough and tumble town, just so few of them. And so um, I don't know if you want to hear more about it, but, uh, but yeah, it's based on the true stories of three of these women and, and what happened to them and how each of them actually had a pretty big effect on not just the events of the massacre, but also how Los Angeles became a city, uh, a real city, a law and order, we'll call it a law and order city, and how it was able finally to join the rest of the country. You've been listening to an interview with Lisa C., whose latest novel is Lady Tan Circle of Women, And you can find out quite a bit more about the novel and see photos that presumably show us some of the scenes in the novel, uh, the garden in particular, 
at lisac.com. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. 